Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read, begin reading in verse 26. And we're going to talk about a little odd um, realities of, of Christmas uh, this, this, this year. In the sixth month, now let me just stop there for a moment. And everybody who knows me is like, oh, he's two words in and he's already stopping. This is going to take weeks. Uh, maybe not. But it is important, I think, in the sixth month, because that's, that's in the Jewish month Adar, which it falls end of February, first part of middle of March in that area. And so the reason why most people have always held to a December birth of the Messiah was that comes nine months from this announcement. All right, I, I hear people a lot of times say, you know, Jesus wasn't born in December, and I, I don't know why that's a big deal to folks that he was or that he wasn't. But typically, this is why it, uh, it it's not because of some pagan holiday and Christians trying to take that back. It's because from the time that the angel came to Mary, uh, to the time that Jesus was delivered, this would have been about nine months. Now, the good news is, or the bad news, we're not going to get lost in details. We have no idea when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and she conceived uh, Jesus. So uh, we're not going to get hung up on that. I just want to take a moment to, to, to touch on that. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Well, like any of us, it would, it's, it's sort of kind of like a, you know, what is expected of me? This is not just a typical greeting for a teenage girl to be receiving this kind of oh favored one from an angel. So, you know, what's, what's the real ask here? And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I'm going to take a, just a couple of verses here, but... Mary then goes and visits her relative Elizabeth, who also is uh, miraculously pregnant uh, with uh, John the Baptist. And so when Elizabeth had heard the greeting, it's a verse 41, sorry. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Verse 46, and then Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, I want you to notice something. There's something very, very important here. This is just really good, quick Christian advice, okay? My soul magnifies the Lord and as a result, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, we have talked now for several years about the, the, the person that we are, the created person that we are of being flesh, of being soul, and being spirit, of being body, of being mind, and of being spirit. What we're learning here is that the middle part of us, the thing that encompasses our personalities, our emotions, our will, our heart, all of that in scripture is the soul. It's where we think, it's where we feel, it's where we desire, it's where we grieve, it's where we have emotion. That's in the center part of us, the soul, the suke in the Greek, okay? That's important because as we are learning to have our minds transformed by the renewing of God, God's word daily, to have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus, before our spirits can do anything godly, they must first be renewed and we must be renewed in our minds. So what Mary is saying here is that it is an intentional part of her to magnify the Lord in her soul, and as a result, her spirit rejoices in God her Savior. Now, here's the thing about most Christians. I, I would dare say, this is a little bit critical and probably not completely true, but most Christians struggle with feeling joyful most of the time. We want joy. We want to feel joyful. We want to rejoice, but look around, right? There's always something that's trying to get in our way. Something else that distracts us from joy. But what Mary says is rather than focusing on the joy first and then changing the way we think, we have to first magnify the Lord and that then informs the, the spirit. So we need to figure out what it looks like in our life to magnify Jesus Christ, to magnify God in our soul, I believe that is the number one reason why Christians have a joy deficit is because we are waiting for our spirit to inform our minds when the truth of the matter is our minds are our responsibility. Spending time in God's presence, spending time in God's word, spending time focused upon magnifying who he is. You know, magnifying is making things larger. So this is, this is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so as we intentionally spend time focusing on the magnitude of God, that's where we'll begin to find the joy that we've been looking for. This is a very, very important point for Christians because we're looking for God to do something in us. And so a lot of times we walk in deficit, we walk in defeat, we walk in disappointment while we're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And the truth of the matter is, everything God wants for us, we already have access to as tools. 
If we're not experiencing the joy of the Lord, that's on us because the joy of the Lord is there. We're just not investing in it with what God has called us to to do and to be and to have. All right, so I say all of that just to say, you think of, uh, you know, I don't know that we've gotten there quite quite yet, but uh, look at verse, verse 47 again. And my soul rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the, what? Humble estate of his servant. The humble estate. Now, this is a very interesting word. I'm not gonna go into a huge word study here, but that word, humble estate, means spiritual abasement. It means to, to notice the deficit of who we are spiritually. And so what, he is, what she is saying here is the Lord has noticed, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. I've got nothing to offer him. What is it Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verse three? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall have the, see the kingdom of heaven. Remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's exactly what Mary is saying right here 30 years before Jesus said it, is that blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall see the kingdom. So, my spirit rejoices because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. There's a lot of good truth in there. I think of Micah chapter six, verse eight, when it says, what do I require of you, O Israel, except this to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. We have the action of doing justice. We have the attitude of loving mercy and we have the heart of walking humbly. In Proverbs chapter three, verse 34, it says this, toward the scorners, he is scornful. Now, let me stop for a moment to talk about scorn because this word in our vocabulary is an incredibly strong, uh, divisive kind of word. When somebody's scorning something, we have a pretty good facial expression of what that looks like. That's not what the true Hebrew or Greek word is here. What this word actually means is uh, someone who is a know-it-all. You ever known somebody that's a know-it-all and they want you to know that they know it all? That's what the word scorn is. So uh, to, for somebody to be so arrogant, for someone to be, uh, you can't tell me anything about that, somebody who is a one-upper, uh, that's kind of what Scripture is saying here. So, and and I, I, you know, you think about, now wait a minute, for, for God here, it's toward the scorners, he is scornful. Well, God would be a know-it-all. Well, the only way that that's a negative thing is if God doesn't know it all, Right? I think of Job as a great illustration of this. When Job is starting to act like he knows something and in Job chapter 40, God just kind of grabs him by the collar and pulls him up into his face and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I commanded the sea to move? Where were you when I told the sun where to shine? Where were you when I, that's kind of a, hey, you're gonna be scornful? God can be scornful. And he'll put you in your place pretty quick if you think you're a know-it-all because he is a know-it-all. He's omniscient, right? But look at the other side of that. Toward the scornful, scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. 
Now, interestingly enough, I love that word favor. I love studying that throughout Scripture of how much favor we have on us when we walk humbly before the Lord. But ultimately, that word favor is another way to translate the word grace. But to the humble, to the deficit, to the spiritually abased, to the nobodies, he lifts them up. Again, another promise. But I want you to notice this. To, to humility, he gives birth to grace. Now, what do we try to do with our lives? Listen, apart from God, we're trying to make something out of our life. We're trying to build ourselves. We're trying to make ours, get ours, take ours, whatever it looks like. We need a reputation. We need relationship. We need, we need real estate. We need whatever it is so we can show that we have gotten our comeuppance. But the truth of the matter is what Scripture says is it's the humble who get God. It's the humble who get grace. It's the humble that once they understand grace, it changes the way they think. And once you change the way you think, you can change how you feel in the spirit and rejoice. If you want to rejoice, you've got to first be brought low. And that's the one thing we don't want. And so a lot of times we forfeit God's best because we have a better plan. One that doesn't require selflessness. It's, it's interesting as we've been over the last few weeks working through this, it's funny to me how God uses the, the lowest, I mean the most unlikely, the impossible anyway. And by the way, I, I feel like that's still true. I feel like God still uses the most unlikely. Listen, if, if I, everybody in here, if I were to ask you, and this was a motivational speech, which I'm not great at, if, if I were to say, list your strengths and list your weaknesses, most people would think that God would use your strengths for his kingdom. Chances are, your strengths are going to be the things that get in your way. Those are the things you're going to lean on. You're going to lean in. And you're going to often sand, polish, get better at. Because they're natural things that you can see from here. But what was it Paul said? In our weakness, not I am strong, in my weakness, he is strong. And that's the goal of the humble, is to be able to see Jesus in me, not see my best self. Christianity is not about being able to see my best self. Christianity is about people being able to see Jesus in me. And this is a very important part of walking in our faith. I think of, I think of Eve, the first woman, she was not God's humble servant. Eve had, now to be fair to Eve, I'm gonna be fair to Eve for just a second. So when I say this, just put it in context, okay? Eve had everything a woman could want, but she wanted more. She wanted more and she took more. She wanted to be like God and in her pride, she doubted God's word to her and she rebelled. And of course, Adam and Eve then their fall into sin led to sinful nature, led to brokenness, led to separation from God. It led to us being cut off from God both physically and also spiritually and ultimately physical and spiritual death. But in the midst of that curse, and I want to draw attention to this, we think when God is, is meeting out all of the curses, and I won't go into all of those, but when he is, uh, curses Adam with hard work and you know, thorns and all of those sorts of things, and Eve with childbirth, and uh, you know, he, he, he 
gets to the serpent and he curses the serpent. And in the midst of all of that, at the end of that, he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Now let me just twist that for just a moment because it's almost like God didn't get his way and he's so disappointed and I want you out. But the truth of the matter is the tree of life is still planted right there in the garden. God wanted a relationship with his people. He wanted a relationship with his creation. That was the plan A. But he also knew that plan A would fail. He made arrangements for that. In fact, I'm not going to teach all that. We don't have enough time for all of that. Uh, But that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden is so important because what he was doing was setting into place or into place a plan that would redeem the relationship between he and his creation. Because long as Adam and Eve, even in sin, separated from God, as long as they had access to the tree of life, they're eating of it. And now they could live forever forgiven but separated from God in this existence where God would come in the cool of the day. But God doesn't want that and so he kicks them out of the garden to separate them from the tree of life. So now there is a clock that starts. It's winding down and while God spiritually is cut off from them, eventually they will die physically. And when they do, Because of the promise that he gives in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, their last breath, they can step right into his throne room. And now they're not separated in the Garden of Eden. They are in the very presence of God himself. And that's what God wanted all along. Now you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the proto-evangelion. This is uh, the two words meaning the first gospel. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, he's talking to the serpent here, of course, and he is saying that he is going to put strife enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. Everything the serpent produces and everything the woman produces are going to be at odds with each other. And here's what's going to happen. Eventually, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And what he will do is strike at the serpent. Uh, The serpent will be able to strike at the Savior's heel. Now, I don't know about you, but given the two choices, I'd much rather have my heel struck than my head stomped. This is assuring victory that God is going to produce victory through the woman's seed. Now, obviously, hearing this, there's, Eve is left to one assumption. Your seed will destroy the serpent's seed. Of course, every mama thinks her baby is going to be the one, right? But instead, her oldest son killed his brother, didn't give him life, killed him. And so we, we're left to sit there. You know, Eve is sitting there thinking, well, that sure didn't, that's not the way I saw this coming. It wasn't Eve's son. It wasn't Sarah's son. It wasn't Manoah's son. It wasn't Hannah's son. It wasn't Elizabeth's son. It's the most unlikely, unknown nobody. Now remember, God looks at the heart of a person, not the resume. If you want to spend your whole life building a resume, it will not be enough to take God's notice. 
I love how Mary doesn't doubt Gabriel's unbelievable message. Now, you've got the professional priest that the angel shows up and tells him something. And the priest makes a fool of himself. He's the professional. And you've got this teenage girl that says, yes, your servant here is whatever you want from me. That's what I'll do, right? He has the credentials, but she has the character. All she wants to know is how it's going to happen. Well, that's reasonable, I think. Gabriel explains. He gives the most scientific explanation to this teenage girl. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And she said, okay. Listen, that's not enough for me. That's why I wasn't chosen. I don't know what any of those things mean. That's not much of an answer. That's not much of an explanation. But Mary, in her humility, accepts it. Look at verse 38. Here's what she says. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That reminds me of Samuel, the one we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, where he said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Eve, in her pride, doubted God's word, but Mary, in her humility, believed it. She believed it. What does it mean? To believe. Zechariah believed God's word, but he really didn't. Eve believed God's word, but not really. How do you know that you believe God's word? When you step into it in obedience, that's how you know you believe it. And that's exactly what we see little humble Mary doing right here. Believing God's word. Anybody could, you can, every one of us can say that we believe God's word when life's going along. But when the world falls apart, or when God asks us to go through something that we would have never picked ourselves, that's how we know what we believe. I mean, listen, Gabriel's answer, I don't know that I'm going to argue with an angel. I don't, I don't know what I would do. But what's that mean that the power of the Most High is going to come upon me? I mean, does that hurt? I, I want to know that. I want to know, does it hurt? Will I feel it? Will I know it? I don't even know. Maybe it happens when I'm asleep. I, I don't know what that feels like, Right? What's Joseph going to do when he finds out I'm pregnant? What's my mom and dad going to think? I mean, this betrothal, this is the same thing as marriage. I mean, you'd have, they'd have to have a divorce even though they're not married yet. They'd have to go through divorce proceedings just to break up. You know what the word says is that if a, if a woman who is betrothed to a man is, is caught in, a, in an affair or adultery and is pregnant... He can divorce her, and she's untouchable by anybody else. Best case scenario, worst case scenario, they bring her to the town square and stone her. These are the questions I would ask, but in my pride, not in my humility, because she trusts the Lord better than I do. Because the Lord said, this is what's going to happen, and she said, okay, you've got it. There's questions I don't have to ask because I already know that you have the answers. I trust you. I don't need to know the answers. How many of us have that kind of faith? I don't need to know all the details, Lord. Just that you asked is enough. If you tell me I'm going to give birth to a baby, I'm not worried about being stoned. If you tell me that I'm going to have a baby, nine months from now I'll have a baby. I don't know if I'll have Joseph. I don't know if I'll get kicked out. 
I don't know if the community will still, but all I need, Lord, is your presence. Here's what I want you to write down in your, in your notes. <clears throat> this is the perfect prayer when you're not getting your way. Whatever you want is what I want. It's pretty simple. Whatever you want, Lord, is what I want. I am not in charge. I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. I don't have the plan. I don't have the, the procedure. I don't have the goal in mind. All of it belongs to you. Now listen, it's, it's easy when it's this job or that job or this house or that house. It's another thing when it's relational, when it's health-related, when you get devastating news and things are just not working out well. That's when we pray, Lord, I do not know why I'm standing here right now. But whatever you want, that's what I want. That's how you know that you're experiencing humility. So consider Mary's humble trust in God and his purpose for her life. I just wonder, what is it? What does it look like for you to entrust to God everything like Mary does here? Her family, her health, her future, everything that she had been planning on. God says, put all that on hold. I got a plan for you. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. When you hold back even a portion of your heart, you can't fully give God anything else. And we're really, really good at giving God most of us. Even some of some of our hearts. But wherever you struggle the most to give away all of yourself is where you'll find disobedience. You cannot fully give God anything else. This is why humility is so important. Because until we're humble, we can't possibly. And that's why when we get into the New Testament, you see this constant drive. I think this is my largest, my biggest tension in 2020 is it has been so difficult to, to be the church. Quarantine, I can deal with that. You know, uh, unstable work, we can deal with that. Un, all, all the instabilities and discomforts, I can put up with a whole bunch of stuff. The hard part for me, I, we, I can go out on the street corner, and I can hold signs, I can love people, I can pray for people, I can visit people, I can do all of those things. The hardest part for me is all of the one another's of the New Testament. It's the, the being with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, just being together. Being communal as a church, we can serve the world. It's this that we miss. And it's, it's frustrating because it's like we can't instill those values into people and into our young people. And, and it's so difficult to be the church without being, to, being able to be one another. And I feel like we're slipping on that. And I don't have an answer for that. I don't know what to do. But I think that's one of the reasons why the New Testament, on every page, Paul gives us another, one another, because it's practice. It's practice. You know, some people in church, they don't want to serve anybody. but They want to serve, but only in areas they can control. We don't want to place ourselves under one another's authority. We don't want to be under the authority of the church. We, don't want, we, we want to control. 
Well, here's what I'm saying to us. That's why the New Testament says that we ought to esteem others more highly than we esteem ourselves. There is no role that one person shouldn't be able to fulfill at any given time. We're just stepping in and serving people, not because I have the plan, but because God's called me to service. Lord, whatever you want for me, that's what I want to do. And I want to start with the body of Christ because this is where we practice that. This is, this is how I can stay humble with the Lord is if I stay humble with you. And the only, one I can, only way I can stay humble with you is if I just keep putting myself under your authority. And not because I'm the pastor, but because I'm a brother. I go to church here too. So I think the New Testament gives us one another to practice humility because of everything God wants to give us in his favor. We only get if we're humble. And I can tell you, it don't take us very long to get over our humility if we're left to ourselves. We start excusing our behavior and justifying our behavior. And before very long, we get comfortable again. We lose everything that the Lord has been working in our life, all the growth. We still think we have it. We've lost all the growth that God's been investing in us. And that's what I'm seeing in much of the body of Christ. May that not be true of ours. But once we've truly given our plans, our fears, control to God in complete humility, then it's so much easier to give ourselves to one another in humility. So we've got to be creative in how to do that. God, God gives favor to those who entrust themselves in him in humility. Elizabeth says of Mary, blessed is she who believed what the Lord has said to her, that, the, that what the Lord said to her would be accomplished. Uh, this is, I don't know, maybe I'm reading something into this, but the last person who the angel spoke to who didn't believe was Elizabeth's husband, who she hadn't talked to in about five months. I think that's interesting because she said, well, blessed are you because you listen, not like that man sitting in there in that recliner. I don't know. I just feel it's funny that she brought that up. God is pleased with those who humbly believe his word and entrust themselves to him. And God is looking for a people who think that he alone can do great things. I remember, you remember Samuel, you know, Hannah had taken Samuel to the temple. Eli's raising him. And one night Samuel gets up and goes to Eli and says, hey, you, you called for me? No, I didn't. Go back and go to bed. Must have been a dream. Here's Samuel. Samuel again gets up. This is several times. And finally Eli's like, I think that might be the Lord talking to this young man. He says, go back to bed. And if you hear it again, you just say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now, Samuel's obviously being raised right because that would terrify most people. So he goes back in and he lays down and he hears this voice, Samuel, Samuel, speak, your servant hears. And here's what the Lord said. He said, Samuel, I'm about to tell you some things that is going to make every ear in Israel tingle. Isn't that awesome? The Bible says in the end days that people are going to want to have itching ears, being told only what they want to hear, right? Pretty meaningless. But can you imagine like a dog ears tingle whenever it is alerted? I think of that. And I think of Samuel having the responsibility, this nobody little kid who's asleep in the back room of the temple and God says, hey, I got a message for you. I want you to tell all of Israel. Just a nobody. Here's one of the things that I learned through 
Samuel, this encounter with Samuel, is that God wants to inform us. For those of you who wonder if God still speaks, he does. He wants us to know. He wants us to hear. He wants us to be involved. He wants to use us. He wants to be with us. On every page, we see God getting rid of all of the distractions. With Adam and Eve, God wanted to be with them. With Mary, that He moved from wanting to be with them to wanting to be in them. And then Mary gave birth and the world got to know Jesus through her. And now with the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension, he is able to enter back into every one of us, not just Mary. And now not only Mary is filled with the Holy Spirit, but every one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit. Christ in us, the hope of glory in us and through us. We are the story of Christmas. Nobody's. But God doesn't just come and bless the humble. He comes and he humbles himself. He models humility. The king of glory doesn't descend on a star. He's born through a peasant and laid in an animal trough. And he spends every day of his earthly existence not knowing where his next meal's coming from, trusting in humble obedience that God the Father, Jehovah Jireh, will provide. And what does he tell us? To walk in that same humility. Philippians tells us that who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But listen to this closely. Only those who humble themselves before before him will receive his favor and his grace. It starts with intentional humility. Now, I also want you to notice, and I'm going to, I'm going to give this really quickly because I don't, I, I'm going to flesh it all out, but I'm not going to have time. There's two other things that I want you to notice that the angels told all of them and specifically told Mary is that he was going to sit on the throne of King David. Several different times we hear this, all the way back from the promises to David that God was going to give him a descendant all the way through. And so not only is he a humble servant, He's the king. Can you imagine? Honestly, Jesus is a rightful heir to the king of Israel. Legally. Legally. You go back to why Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 is so important because it does Jesus' genealogy. It does, it does uh, 28 generations on Joseph's on Mary's side. It does 75 generations on, uh, on Mary. So you have this, uh, or uh, vice versa on that. I'll talk about that in just a second. But in Matthew, Matthew is writing to Jews. 
Jews always looked at the legal side, not the matriarchal side. When Luke is writing, Lucas, the Greek, is writing to Gentiles, to Greeks, he is following mom's side. Now, I know it says it starts with Joseph, but then it says the son of, and that actually could be the son-in-law of, and it goes all the way back. It goes through David, through Abraham, all the way back to Adam, who is a son of God. Go back and look at that. It is so powerful that who Jesus truly is. He is a humble servant of a nobody. But he's also the king of Israel, not really. He's also the son of God, yet fully man. So whether you track the legal side of Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, you will find that Joseph, there's one reason, Joseph had to go back to his census because this is where he's from because he is of the house of David. But Mary also tracks her genealogy all the way back to Father Abraham, who had many sons. I can't hardly say that without. That's how you know how long you've been in church. Isn't that powerful? Jesus, through these two genealogies, shows that he is the son of man and he is the son of God. He's on both sides. In equal parts. 100%. They take Jesus to Simeon. Well, they take him to have him circumcised on the eighth day at the temple. Simeon gets this baby, holds him up, and he says, I have seen the salvation of Israel. But not only will he be, this is in Luke chapter 2, not only will it be the salvation of Israel, but for all, both Jews and Gentiles. Apparently the Holy Spirit had told Simeon something. That Jesus wasn't going to just be the king of the Jews. He's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But then he says a very strange thing to Mary on her baby's eighth day. He says that it will, through the a sword piercing her soul. Look at Luke chapter 2. Look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In 33 years, as a sword pierces Jesus' side, as you can imagine a mother, a sword pierces her soul as she watches. What a strange way to be the Messiah. What a strange way to be the fulfillment of the king prophecy. To humbly die on a cross. 
For those who say, and ironically, more and more I, I, I hear these things of, you know, maybe God's not so good. I also hear in equal parts, I don't think I'm so bad. Listen, if you don't think God is so good, you need to look at the manger and see how good he is. I'm afraid that we keep looking for fresh. We get distracted by the lights of Christmas that we forget the light of Christmas. The story of who we are and what God has come to do through Christ. Listen, we need to put away all of those distractions for a moment, just like Mary, and ponder these things in her heart. To think about who we really are. Listen, if you don't think that God is purely good and everything that he does is good, look at the manger. And if you don't think you're quite so bad, you need to look at the cross. Where God's goodness and your badness come together, look at the empty tomb and the ascension. That's good math right there. God's goodness and your badness equals forgiveness for all eternity. Not just to rule a little kingdom but to rule for all time. And if you want to experience, you know what? There's a reason why I think Christians don't get so joyful anymore. There used to be a time when Christians would just rise up in joy when we would think about a hope of eternity. I think there's a reason why we don't experience that same joy. In this time of year, it's almost like there's, well, 2020, but there's almost like a depression that falls over. We've forgotten the story of the lowly servant who's come to redeem all sin for all time. We've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten who he is. We're forgetting that from, from Zechariah, who was filled with joy, to Elizabeth, filled with joy, Mary, filled with joy, Joseph, filled with joy, the shepherds, filled with joy, the angels in the sky, filled with joy, because it's good news. What, what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3 has been undone. And now we have the tree of life again. And we will have it for all eternity. It's interesting that Eve had it all, but she wanted more and she ruined us before we could ruin ourselves. David had it all and he ruined us because he wanted more. Lastly, God had it all, but he wanted more. And that was a personal relationship with us. And so he sent his son Jesus in the lowest, lowliest, humblest way. And he modeled humility for us so that we could rejoice in him instead of our resumes, instead of our bank accounts, instead of our real estate, instead of our relationships, that we could boast in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. Don't be distracted from that, brothers and sisters. We need each other to continue to learn humility. That's why we can experience joy when we're together. It's through humility. We must humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift us up. But if you're a know-it-all, I know a better know-it-all. But if you're humble, I know that he'll give you grace. Eve took, David took, every other candidate takes. But when God wants more, he gives. And that becomes a characteristic of his people. That we give ourselves to one another freely. We give ourselves to the world. We give our reputations for his name's sake, not our own. So as we think about Christmas, 
I want us to think about who Jesus was, who he blesses, who he uses. And I want you to remember something. Just like he did with Mary, with some variation, he's also placed himself in you. And he has asked you to carry the message. Good news of great joy which shall be to all people. And through you, there will be joy to the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reminder today of who you are and who you use, what you've called us to be. And so, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would freshen us, would soften us, would help us, Lord, to remember it's hard, Lord, to have a Christmas message every year and try to produce freshness. But, but truly, the story is fresh all by itself. I'm afraid we keep trying to reinterpret it. We keep trying to add characters to it, to, to add depth. Lord, I pray, we would, I pray you'd forgive us for that. We would just scale all of that back. And we would just see how much you love us. That you gave your only son... And that you didn't, you didn't win the greatest battle by military prowess or by governmental authority, but just purely by love and service and devotion, sacrifice and obedience. So Lord, help us to walk in that same walk. Help us to walk as Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? I want you just to, just, in, just for a moment, just ask yourself, what, where, where am I not trusting God? Where, if God were to show up, what would it be he would ask me to, to do or to be? And, and you may say, I mean, you, you may even say, I don't, I don't really know an area in my life where I'm actively being disobedient. Well, then let me ask you this. Where, where are you Fearful. Where do you find anxiety? Because those are areas that you've, those are portions, slivers of your heart you've not fully trusted the Lord in. Those are areas of your life that you're still trying to control. And as long as you're trying to control, you can't live humble before the Lord. What portions of your heart I mean, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. What was it that Simeon said in Luke 2? I didn't really get to that. But listen to what he said when Simeon is talking to Mary. He said that the sword will pierce your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I mean, that is, that is really tough, too, because what Jesus did, if I were to ask you this morning, I want to take turns, and I want everybody to expose every thought you've ever had. Even, even if, if we limit it to today, every thought you've ever had, I want you to tell everybody. <clears throat> that may be one of the reasons why people don't want to go to church, right? Well, I'm not going to ask you that. But I do want to remind you, I do want your thoughts to be exposed to yourself. 
This is very important because they're already exposed to the Lord. They were exposed to the Lord before he talked to Mary about sending Jesus through her. This is no time to try to impress us. This is no time to try to impress yourself. This is a time to be honest before the Lord because your thoughts are already exposed before him. And Jesus came and was born in a humble way, lived as a humble servant, died as a humble servant, but resurrected in power. Just so your thoughts and your hearts could be exposed before God and be restored to him. I don't want to know. Listen, I deal with my own stuff. I don't want to know what your thoughts and your attitudes and your hearts are. But I pray the Lord will reveal to me mine. And I'd be able to lay bare and be poor in spirit because I want to see his kingdom. And I want to see it with you, brothers and sisters. I need to walk in humility with you, under your authority, with you, side by side. Because I want to experience the joy of the Lord because that's the strength we're looking for. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your wounded Savior. We thank you that that Savior is not wounded any longer, but he is high. The right hand of the throne, the arm of power. And I pray, Lord, as we are honest with ourselves in this moment, we would give you our greatest fears, our greatest anxieties, our worries, our troubles, our pretensions. And Lord, that we would learn how to continually just offload these things that keep us from giving you our full heart and walking in humility. So Lord, help us. Help us. We need your help. Bring us brothers and sisters who will remind us that we need your help. we thank you for giving us yourself so that we could have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. You're dismissed. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.